The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed in the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. Good morning. I'm Catherine Zox. I am your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me this morning is psychiatrist and chief medical officer, Nzinga Harrison, M.D. Uh, Dr. Harrison is chief medical officer for Anchor Behavioral Health Incorporated and a member of the clinical adjunct faculty in the nursing schools at Emory University and Morehouse School of Medicine, a graduate of the University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine. She has written and presented many articles and workshops on the medical aspects of addiction and other psychiatric disorders. But this morning, Dr. Harrison is going to be talking with me about ghosting in relationships. Everyone is talking about ghosting. I don't know about everyone, but many people. People are talking about ghosting. It is used in relationships where one person stops all communications with the partner and goes completely silent. We're seeing it happen in business where clients and vendors totally different disappear. Uh, we see it happen in social relationships. It's becoming more and more common. Some believe social media and technology has made it easier for people to ghost. Why is ghosting becoming so popular? What are the effects of ghosting? And what does it say about us as a culture? Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on, Dr. Harrison. Um, uh, you know, we expect you to answer all of those questions for us. <laughs> <laughs> I'll do my best. Okay, good. <laughs> what should we start with? Well, ghosting in relationships, let's, let's kind of, I mean, I just, I gave an introduction to it, but is this a new phenomenon? I mean, it, you know, when I was, I read the article and you and I started talking about it a little bit before the show, but there was the big article or the article in the New York Times about ghosting. It almost reminds me of, you know, shunning. What was it? The Quakers who did shunning? It has kind of a similar feel to it. You know, if you, like shunning somebody, is is that the same as ghosting? Specifically, what is ghost? You define it for us. So ghosting is literally like Casper the ghost. One minute you see me, one minute you don't. So we have some relationship. And like you mentioned in the introduction, um, this is happening in personal relationships. I would hope less so in business relationships, but also happening there, where you have some regular you know, encounters and relationship with a person and then suddenly light cast for the ghost, they just disappear from your life, never to be heard from or seen again. I don't think it's a new phenomenon um, because if you look back over your life, you can think of people that like, huh, what did happen to that person? Suddenly they just dropped out of your life. Or you may even think of a time when you dropped out of someone else's life, um, whether intentionally or unintentionally. But because we're so connected now through our technical devices, our phones and laptops and um, iPads and social media, because we're used to that minute-to-minute interaction, then it's really shining a spotlight when this person becomes absent. 
So let's talk about in terms, okay, so that's the definition of ghosting, but let, let, put it in the context, maybe let's start out with like personal relationships like you're talking about. In other words, like let's say you're dating somebody and you've been dating them, you know, pretty steadily, say, for three months, and then the person decides or you decide you never want to see them again or you never want to talk to them again, so you just cut off all, you don't, you don't explain why, you just leave the scene. Is that what, is that what it is? That's exactly what it is. You don't explain why. You give this person no indication that your disappearance is even coming, and then you suddenly just disappear. So they try to call you. They try to text you. They try to email you. They try to, you know, post to your Facebook and send you an Instagram message, and you are absolutely, utterly unresponsive, as if you had completely ceased to exist. For that person, you have ceased to exist. So why are we doing it? Why is it becoming more popular? As opposed you know, to maybe thought, in the, yeah, you know, I was just thinking maybe, you know, 10 years ago or whatever, five years ago, you wanted to break up with somebody, you, you had to talk to them and tell them why, whether you're making excuses or whatever the reason was, but there was a connection. There was kind of like a, a goodbye, and it was usually done in person. Um, so this is like total 180 from that. Why are we doing it? Right. I think there are a couple of um, driving forces and probably the, probably even more than a couple But one, I'll say, before so much of our interaction became electronic, so um, our culture is changing right now and the way that we communicate, even if we look like really far back, it used to be that there was distance in between and it was hard to travel that distance, and so we used letters. And letters were considered kind of the most sincere form of communication. And then uh, the telephone came, and so it was the telephone and that was the most sincere form. And then travel became very easy, and you could actually see people in person, even though they lived far away. And then email came, and email started kind of reintroducing distance because you could immediately and regularly communicate with someone without actually being in the same physical space. And then social media um, in some ways brought us together because you can communicate uh, more quickly and more regularly, but in other ways, Uh, actually created social distance because you can have ongoing relationships with people that you literally never see. And so in the past, and I mean, I don't want to make myself sound like, you know, old fogey like back when I was young, but when we were younger, the people that you dated and had relationships with were in your immediate geographic circle. And the social interactions that you had with them were in the same physical location. They were face-to-face. They were in person. And so along with that came the courtesy that if you need to end a relationship, you're probably going to see this person again in your regular world. So rather than suffer the embarrassment of ghosting and then running into them at a social event because your lives overlap so much, you practice prevention and say, we're going to amicably end this relationship. Well, now that so many of our relationships are, you know, technology-based, there are plenty of people you have relationships with that unless you make an intentional date to actually see that person, you're pretty safe that you won't see them again. And so you're pretty safe with ghosting that you won't later suffer that embarrassment of running into a person whose life you just dropped out of. And I think when the uh, Huffington Post did their study about who's doing the most ghosting, it's young adults age 18 to 29. 
they're the ones that have these relationships where unless we intentionally plan to get together, the rest of our relationship may be very technological. And that makes it easy for me literally to never see you again. So I think that's contributing. But another thing is just the way kind of culturally in America we are raised to have relationships. And so I'm going to get just a bit psychiatric if that's okay. That's um, it. You're the, you're the psychiatrist. Go ahead. <laughs> right, right. That's like my knee-jerk response. Um, so as we're raising children up, we really um, intentionally send the message that you always have to be polite and you always have to consider other people's feelings. Um, and that's very important. We know that children that are raised with empathy and understanding or caring are more successful as adults. We also unintentionally send the message that other people's feelings are more important than your own. And that's really where we go wrong um, because when you get into these, let's talk about personal relationships, when things become uncomfortable or at the point you recognize that you really do not want this person in your life, we haven't raised people to know that they have the right to not want people in their lives that make them feel bad. And we've raised that you have to be so polite that you can't look this person in the face and say, this relationship is not good for me, and so I'm leaving. And so we have this kind of avoidant relationship communication style where it is just keep everything, you know, smooth no matter what, and people misinterpret that. The smoothest would be to just tolerate that one confrontation to say, you know, it used to be, it's not you, it's me. The words behind that really are, uh, it's, it's neither one of us, it's this relationship. It's not good for me, so I'm choosing not to be in it, and we don't need to have contact. I have the right to make that choice for myself. You should have the right to make that choice for yourself, and the two of us should be able to be responsible enough to respect those choices. But that's not the type of communication we foster in American culture. So, Dr. Harrison, you're saying we don't have the social skills anymore? We, we haven't developed them or we don't help our children to develop them to be able to deal with confrontation or to deal Absolutely. with those uncomfortable circumstances so we just cut it off because we can't do that? Um, that's exactly right. It's, it's, it's avoidance, right? So you look at... Um, like attachment styles, which basically describes the way people interact with other people. And it starts immediately from the day you're born. Really, it starts while you're still in the uterus developing and then is informed by the attachments that you have from the minute you come into this world. And there are secure attachments, which are like, I can experience myself in this relationship. I can experience you in this relationship. I can experience the space between us that defines our interaction and I can, you know, tolerate everything that goes along with that, good and bad. And then there are insecure attachments and kind of two main ways people express those, with the first one being very clingy, right? That's kind of like um, being insecure and uh, I will do just anything, absolutely any and everything to make sure that people stay in my life, even if it's not good for me because that's better than being along, alone. And then the other side of that coin is being avoidant. I avoid confrontation at all costs because I just can't tolerate it. 
And this flows out of personal relationships and the work relationships. So just think about when you know that you have to have a difficult conversation with someone. Your brain and your body actually give you fear signals, right? They give mm-hmm. you danger, the same signals you would have if you saw an angry dog that's about to chase you. Your heart races, your mouth gets dry, your palms get sweaty, your stomach gets queasy. And by all accounts, your brain is telling you that this interaction is about to be dangerous. We have to train ourselves as adults, but it's so much easier if you just do it from the time, you know, there are little people to be able to interpret those signals, not that it's so dangerous you have to avoid it, but that you still have the right and even the responsibility to communicate your position in this relationship with the other person. Well, you know, that said, I'm thinking about, you know, intimate relationships, or we kind of are talking, I think, about that. But as you're talking, I'm thinking about maybe this ghosting and I'm thinking of myself, like, because we have so many relationships, either ones that you see people in person or ones that are simply, you know, you communicate on the Internet, that maybe it becomes easier just when a relationship isn't working, whether it's business and or friend or acquaintance, to just let it go and not eat, and not acknowledge that you are ending the relationship because you have so many other relationships I mean, you're talking about the age group, eight, what did you say, 18 to 20-something is when people do mm-hmm. ghosting the most. 29. Yeah, mm-hmm. 29. So, like, if they have all these relationships, let's say, on Facebook, and they're so connected to so many people, that one, it, it doesn't, a relationship doesn't mean that much. It doesn't mean the same as it did when you didn't have all those relationships. So you can just say, okay, I just, I can't deal with it. I only have so much time, so much energy, and I'm just going to let it go. Do you think that is part of it? Absolutely. Completely and utterly agree. So, for example, um, on Facebook right now, I think I probably have 830 friends, right? Some of those friends could go for me right now, and I wouldn't even know it (laughs) because there's so many. But there's also uh, the phenomenon where you have two people who are in a relationship, and that relationship occupies more meaning for one person than it does for the other person. So as I was thinking about coming on with you this morning, I was thinking, I've never ghosted a person because, of course, I pride myself on my communication skills, right? I'm a psychiatrist. But as I started to think about it, in college, I definitely ghosted people. And it was just because we had a relationship, but then whatever happened in my life next, just eclipsed the importance of that relationship, and I forgot about it. Same thing in medical school. I definitely ghosted people in medical school, and these were not necessarily intentional ghostings, like I've decided something about this relationship is terrible and I'm going to disappear. It was just that this relationship didn't hold enough salience to compete with everything else that was going on in my life. So I completely agree with you. Um, that that is a phenomenon that can definitely go on. So there's probably some combination of unintentional ghosting, which is just this relationship was less important to me than it was to you. Um, and then intentional ghosting, which is um, I kind of have too much confrontation avoidance to have what may be a small confrontation or based on a relationship may be a big confrontation to say this relationship is over. Um, And then a second type of intentional ghosting, which is something so horrible has happened in this relationship 
that I just have to disappear because I can't tolerate either the memories or the chance that that will happen again, whatever that was. All right. So what are the effects on the person who does the ghost thing? You've taken this, like the example you just gave, like, I, I just, I can't deal with this. I don't want to deal with it. It's too intense. I'm never going to see you again, even though you don't realize that, but this is what the ghosting person is doing. What's the effect on that person? Because they haven't really, like you're saying, they haven't dealt with the issues. They haven't dealt with the person. So over time, what does that do to the person who does the ghosting? You know, and if they do it, maybe not just once, but maybe that's a pattern of behavior. How does that affect them mentally? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So if we look at the, the first kind of uh, category I created of ghosting, which was the unintentional, you just fell out of my life because other things came up, that probably has no impact um, as a one-time occurrence for, we'll call it the ghoster. Right. I just got busy. You disappeared. I didn't realize that relationship. But if that becomes a pattern, then eventually Ghoster finds themselves without meaningful relationships because something else has always been able to go in front. And it's the question um, that our local radio show does this great segment, which is called Breakup Report Card. And they call the exes and say, you know, why did you break up with this person? And the ghoster would hear over and over and over um, you know, they just disappeared. They just disappeared. And then you get the answer to, oh, why don't I have any meaningful relationships in my life? And, you know, in a psychiatric way, then we go to look deeper and say, what is it about deep connections um, that makes you push those away? The second type, which was um, I just didn't have the fortitude to, you know, to make the initial confrontation to say this relationship is not good for me. As that becomes a pattern, then you have to, one, wonder to yourself, why do I keep getting in relationships that are not fulfilling my needs? And what is it that prevents me from being able to, you know, articulate what my needs are and kind of stand up for myself to say my needs are not being met? Um, Because relationships are not always easy. Sometimes your needs are not being met. And a conversation could change that. You could say, my needs are not being met. And then maybe you would have a relationship here. Um, But what you'll find for those people that kind of just have this pattern of just ghosting is that, one, they may develop some insight and say, oh, okay, I can see how uh, this is affecting me because I continue to carry this person in my psychological space. So even though you've dropped out of their lives, they haven't dropped out of your psychological life and they're occupying space in your mind that you could be maybe putting into a different relationship or doing something different. And then the just something so horrible happened category that we created where I just can't even tolerate the idea of thinking about it. Every single experience that we've had goes with us and carries forward into our future, our present and our future lives. And the ones that are most detrimental to us are those that we don't consciously carry forward and make decisions about how we want that to affect our future lives. So I'll give an example. Let's say I was uh, in a relationship that I thought to myself, oh, I don't really like the way this guy talks to me. He's kind of rude. I don't really like the way he talks to other people. He's kind of rude. But I let it go on, and then one day – 
we went out to dinner and he was so incredibly abusive and rude to our waitress that I said, you know what? I'm ghosting this guy. I can't deal with this kind of person. And I just left. That was the straw that broke the camel's back. By not addressing that, I'm really not allowing myself to evaluate what my needs are in a person who would be a mate and what my needs are for the type of communication I have in a relationship. And I just keep, I play that in my mind. Even though I kicked him out of my life, I play it in my mind. Oh, I can't believe he was so rude to her. Oh, he was, he was the worst. How, how did I let myself be with that guy? But because I don't consciously address it, I find myself in the next relationship with a person who's very similar, walking the same path. And so we have to let ourselves address these things that are so uncomfortable so that they don't continue to haunt us and become a repetitive cycle. All right. Given that, and that's what we're talking about, these kinds of relationships, can we do a flip? And how does this impact? Because the other side of this, too, is not just intimate relationships or uh, personal relationships, but in business. Because can you address that as well? Because it seems to me we're talking also about people in business are doing the same thing, working with somebody either as a business partner or working with a vendor or another business, and then just suddenly ending the relationship or ghosting the relationship without any kind of end to, to, the, to the business relationship. So how does that impact us as a culture or a society? Sure. So um, this happening in business relationships still shocks me, although I know it happens. I mean, you know, employees never come back to work and businesses dissolve. So it kind of goes back to the uh, burned bridges, uh, cliche, which is like you never want to burn your bridges. Ghosting is tantamount to burning your bridges, especially in business. So even if it was an unhealthy business relationship, there are potentially spokes off of that business relationship that could represent other opportunities. And the same is true for personal, but specifically for business. When you're trying to have a business that can be sustained in the future, you never want to cut off your spokes. And so I would counsel people, and this is actually um, a big part of people that come for professional coaching when they find themselves stymied, you can find these type of relationship patterns in their business relationships as well. And you say, you know, we really have to devise a way um, for you to be able to communicate objectively the reasons why this business relationship won't go forward in a way that still allow you to have access to the spokes that may come off of that relationship for future opportunities. It's really a learned skill. And it, it is all about being able to get over the hump of that danger signal that your body gives you when you're faced with the need to have a confrontational discussion and how to do that without being confrontational and how to get a good outcome on the other end. I had, as you're talking, I was thinking I had a ghosting relationship many years ago when my kids were young, and I had a a babysitter who had been taking care of the, the, the kids for, I don't know, at least six months, and then one day, and you know, it's an intimate relationship with some, or mm-hmm. it's business and intimate, someone's taking care of your kids, right? Mm-hmm. And she just never showed up again. I never heard for, it, it was, and I've never forgotten it. It was such a sting or a blow or it was just, and, and I, it was, uh, and totally unexpected. So I, it, um, I, I, that's, Isn't that that's remarkable? A, and how yeah. long ago was that? 
uh, I'm not going to tell you because then you're going to know how old I am. But it was oh. it was long ago. It was you know it was. Let's just say it was long ago, and it still affects you today. Absolutely, right? it was over 20 years and ago. Over 20 years, yeah. and you're still affected by that today because you're left with the question, "What did I do?" Exactly. Right. And that's how the ghostie, the person who has been ghosted, is affected. And that's what's so unfair about it is, what did I do? There may have been something that you did. And if she had, uh, uh, sorry, I made the assumption that your child care provider was a she. If that person had, okay, if she had been able to just say to you, you know what, this is what you did. And I don't feel like. I can tolerate that or want to give a chance for it to happen again, so I'm just going to go. Maybe that would have been something you could have prevented doing again in the future. Or maybe it's nothing you did, and she could have saved you 20 years of not having closure. Like, as much as we um, kind of unintentionally support this lack of ability to communicate in difficult situations, we're also a culture that is very, very, very focused on closure, And so we're kind of putting ourselves in this catch-22. We're dying for closure, but we're supporting the inability to give closure at the same time. Yeah, and you're so right, because in this situation, I had to hire another babysitter, and I'm wondering, as you brought up some of the issues, like, well, did I do something wrong? I don't want to do it again. You know, was it I, or was it the kids, or was it the circumstances? So I have nothing to go on, even for hiring the next person, and also Mm -hmm, felt very mm -hmm. vulnerable. Yeah. And, so, you know, she she may have thought to herself, um, like, this is a common dynamic. Oh, I'm not that important to this person. They'll get over it and it'll be fine. I'll disappear. They probably won't even notice. Yeah. And little do they know they've just, like, put a crater in your life. Yeah. So, okay, so this is something that we only have a few minutes left. So let's, uh, you know, what 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 should we, as a culture... If, it's, if this is happening more and more, as we've been discussing in relationships and business, um, what do we do? How do we stop it? It's not a good thing. No, it's not. It's not a good thing. It doesn't help anybody in any way. Um, it actually really perpetuates negativity both in the life of the ghoster and the ghostie. So uh, what we can do, you know, I always start at the beginning of the lifespan, prevention. Teach your children, tell them, but also model for them that it is okay and actually expected that they will have relationships that are good for them. And if a relationship is not good for them, they have the right to make that decision and the responsibility to communicate that to the other person. And then, you know, you teach people how to, to, to deliver content that could be hurtful without delivering it in a hurtful way. So that's our critical skill, communication. Since we're already adults, and many of us have passed those formative years where we had the chance to learn that, then the standard we have to hold ourselves to is when I enter into a relationship, we establish kind of the rules of engagement from the beginning. Hey, listen, if you have any problem about anything, you can let me know and know that I'll be able to hear that. Right, And even if we decide in the end that whatever the issue is I have with you or you have with me is going to be the reason this relationship ends, both of us can tolerate hearing that information and both of us commit to deliver that information. That's in a personal relationship. In a business relationship, this is kind of like the constant 
customer satisfaction survey, right? So every single time you call Comcast, they give you a customer service satisfaction survey. Every single time you buy something off of Amazon, they ask you to rate the product and how was my service, right? It's really creating that environment that says, not only do I value your feedback, I want your feedback, even if it's negative. So if we can let people know that we can tolerate negative feedback, and I want it because I will use that to either improve this relationship or if it was so negative, this relationship has to end to be, you know, to have better performance in a future relationship, you can protect both personal and business relationships because permission has been given to share negative information, but also to receive negative information. Great advice. And, Doctor, it has been a pleasure talking to you this morning. And uh, I want to make sure that my uh, listeners can uh, connect with you, talking about connections, uh, on the Mm -hmm. net at your website. So give us your website um, so that we can do that or anybody who wants to continue. And I know you lecture and talk about other areas, as I mentioned in the beginning, addiction, many psychiatric uh, disorders. So where can we reach you? I do. So I'll give two websites. I'm the Chief okay. Medical Officer for ANCA Behavioral Health. So if you're in California and seeking any kind of psychiatric treatment for any reason, you can find us at ankabhi.org. Um, and then I also, like you said, do speaking and education. And you can find me on my personal website at Nzinga, which is N-Z-I-N-G-A, HarrisonMD.com. Great. Thanks so much. Thanks we're gonna, so much. We're gonna, I, I'm going to take a short break right now, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zock Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Don't go away. We'll be back in a minute. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Think of the world 50 years ago. Now think of this same world and how it'll be 50 years from now. Did you know that if the world's population continues to grow at its current rate, our children and grandchildren will only have 25% of the resources per capita that our parents and grandparents had? We must preserve the foundation of a quality standard of living. That foundation starts with Go Green Radio. Join your host, Jill Buck, for Go Green Radio every Friday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific on Voice America. Conservation starts with us. Learn about environmental concerns each week when you tune in to Our Wild World with host Ellie Weiss. Our show centers on Africa each week and what's being done to save our wildlife, ecology, and ourselves. However, we'll also discuss what's going on closer to home. And most importantly, we'll let you know what can be done in our own backyards by featuring guest experts and featuring your questions and answers. Listen every Monday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Museums are great places to work and wonderful places to visit. But are they essential? How can we improve our museum practice so that museums remain vital and essential players in society? Listen for Museum Life with host Carol Bossert, where each week we'll discuss timely and topical issues of concern to the museum community. Museum Life can be heard live every Friday morning at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. 
The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. We're back. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Uh, joining me is my next guest, uh, breast cancer survivor, author, and blogger, Amber Farmer. Farman, and she's author of Farewell, My Loves. That's her new book. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Amber. Thank you so much for having me. It's my pleasure. Well, I must say, I did. I read your book. I read it a couple weeks ago, and uh, one of those kind of I like, couldn't put it down kind of thing. You know, woke up in the middle of the night and finished reading it. So, oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, interesting book and interesting, I guess, concept. Farewell, my loves. Why don't you describe what the, you know? The, the just give us an overview of what the book is about and and your motivation actually for writing the book. Okay. Um, overall, the book is about, I believe, human connection and just our need as humans to give love and to receive love and to just live our truth, whatever that looks like. Live the life that we we feel we need to live. Um, the concept of the book actually came to me many years ago, a long time ago, just kind of like a flash of an idea that crossed my head. And I thought, okay, I think I finally have a book. I think I actually can write a book from A to Z. And so um, I started working on it years ago. Um, and it definitely evolved and changed over the years for sure a little bit. So with my own um, history, just like the main character's history. Which we have to get into because it sounds almost bizarre, but the, the main character in the book had breast cancer, and then you developed breast cancer after you wrote the book, or you you were diagnosed with, with breast cancer. So, um, you know, we can talk about that. But so, okay, so the, the main character in the book has breast cancer, um, mm-hmm. metastatic breast cancer, and that's kind of how we, we start off. Um, but how, what, how she reacts to it and what she actually does in the aftermath of getting this diagnosis is kind of very unique, or I think it's unique. I, I, so let's talk about that. Um, yeah, absolutely. I think it was is very unique. So the uh, main character, Meredith, um, she knows that she is dying. She she knows that. And so um, I guess I parallel myself with her a little bit. And I always thought, well, what would I do? Um, I'm kind of a control freak <laughs> a little bit. Um, and so Meredith basically comes up with a plan, and she just feels like she needs to find her replacement. Okay, think, we should say how old she is because I think that's key, right? She's like, what, 37? Yeah. yeah. She's 37, yeah. So she's young, and so she has four children. She has her husband as the love of her life. Um, and I think, you know, if you look – sometimes on our own life, like what would we do in situations? You know, I, I think most people probably wouldn't go to that extreme, but there's a sense of control that when you know that you're dying, that you're losing. And so I think for her, it was just keeping some sort of control or in her mind thinking she would have control because nobody really can pick and choose and you can't help who you fall in love with. Right. But um, yeah, so she kind of goes on this journey of looking for her replacement. 
um, in the book and also just prepares and lets go of all her fear of dying and just prepares and accepts what's to come and tries to prepare her family for what's to come. And let's talk about that journey because um, obviously it, it, uh, it was something that she decided she wanted to do in terms of finding the replacement, but uh, how did that affect the rest of her family, her husband, her kids? I mean, um, you know, as you say, she wanted, I guess, when you think you're dying or you are dying, this was her way of having some control, she felt, over her own life, her family's life. Um, what? Yeah, there? yeah, yeah, for sure. I think so. Um, you know, and I think the kids, well, in, in the book, the kids don't even get it. You know, they have no idea what goes on behind the scenes between her and her husband, Robert. So I don't think they even get it. But I, you know, for her husband, I mean, how would anybody feel to know that the love of their life is going to be leaving them soon? And she also is working behind the scenes to try to find a replacement when you're not even ready. You know, I don't think Robert's even ready to even accept her death. And I think that's just like in life. You know, we all look at life differently. We all um, have different reactions and feelings with life, you know, situations. So everybody accepts this news of death very differently. And I think her husband was quite the polar opposite of not wanting to accept it at all. You know, even though it's coming, you know, not wanting to talk about, not wanting to plan ahead because it was too painful. So, um, you know, I hoped in the book, too, to just to show the different ways I believe humans can react I mean, there's hundreds of ways that we all react to different to loss in life. And so I just wanted to reflect that and get the characters as well. Don't you think, Amber, I mean, when it happens to you and you're diagnosed with, and, I, and unfortunately I, I know actually two other women at, at the same age who are just diagnosed with metastatic breast cancer. And I'm wondering, you know, your reaction when you're 37 years old and you're young and you have children and you have this great marriage is going to be, somewhat different than if you're 65 years old or 75 years old. And, I mean, that's a huge difference because you don't expect to get that kind of a, of a, of a diagnosis at that age and at that stage in your life cycle, you know, both as an individual and, and, and as a family. So it really is a de- – I mean, it's always a devastating diagnosis, but don't you think the impact is even greater when you're 37? Oh, absolutely. Um, especially, you know, if you're 37, if you have young children still that you're in the middle of raising and just even thinking the thought of having to say goodbye to them, leaving them behind motherless um, is also just something like you, you're, you're not, your job is not done, you know, and it just, it probably would just feel so overwhelming. I mean, I think of it myself, like if I ever got another diagnosis, you know, most likely it will probably be bad. Oh my goodness, leaving them in the middle of their early years, especially, you know, I think there's a huge difference when you're 65. If you've had kids, you've been able to watch them grow up. You've been able to maybe attend their weddings. You've lived a beautiful life for 65 years. So when you're 37, I think you just feel gypped. You just, it's just, you're, you're in your prime. You're in the middle of all the beautiful, wonderful, amazing things happening and of course, I think it's a really huge difference, for sure. And I think that when you talk about loss, 
the losses are enormous. I mean, you kind of touched on that, but not only are the children losing their mother, but you're losing out on, you know, you are, as you talked about, I mean, whether it's weddings and graduations and school and, I mean, you can go on and on. The losses that you are, that that you have to deal with are, are just, as you say, very different than if you've had all these kinds of experiences with your family until you are 65 or 70 or, or whatever. So it, it's really horrific. It is really horrific. And I think that's why um, I think writing this book, going through my own journey, I've just have realized, you know, so many times you'll hear the comments, oh, when the kids are older. Oh, when the kids leave the house, we'll do that. Oh, you know, when, when we retire, we'll do that. I don't think like that anymore. You know, I really don't. And I think maybe as all of us humans, I think we need to maybe start thinking differently too, because in reality, we have no idea what's going to happen tomorrow. We don't know when our death is coming, you know, and death will come. And so I think once we make peace with our death that, you know, we can't not control that situation. You know, it's out of our control for the most part. You know, I I don't know. I just look at life very different now. I don't think what if in retirement or we should do that when the kids are out. I am constantly like, Oh no, if we want to do that. Let's make that happen now. Because I think too many times people get older and then life circumstances do happen and maybe there's tragedies do happen and then you don't get to do those things that you wanted to do because you put them off. So How old were you when you were di- How old were you Amber when you were diagnosed with cancer? With breast cancer? I was 30 I was 31. You were yeah, very young. Was, yeah. I was very young and there's not a lot of um there's not a lot of info on young women with breast cancer. Um you know, a lot of the stats um, are usually ages 45 and up. So it was kind of a lonely time for sure, you know, but I'm very lucky and I'm still here. I'm 37 and I'm still here. And wow, I just feel incredibly, I, of, I often wonder why me, why did I get so lucky? So, um, but I am thankful that I'm okay. So you were 31. Were you married? Were you single? Mm-hmm. Kid- yeah, no, I um, was married. Um, I got married at 19. I have four kids, so very similar to Meredith, the character in my book. Um, actually, very similar. You know, that's a fictional book. However, there is a lot of aspects of the character Meredith that parallel my life. Um, grew up in the church. Yeah, I had my four kids. My kids were all under 10 years old when I was diagnosed, Um Yeah, and it was definitely, I think, too, especially um, to have started writing a book. I started writing Farewell, My Loves two years before I was diagnosed myself. And I was well into the characters. I was well into the story. And then to hear those words myself, and I'll back up a little bit, I chose to start writing um, not about breast cancer. At the time when I started writing Farewell, My Loves, I felt like the pink ribbon and breast cancer was so overly marketed that as a young woman, I didn't take it too serious, which I I wish I did back then. But I wanted to highlight a different cancer because I always believed that cancer is cancer. We need to find a cure for cancer. And, And so I started writing not about breast cancer. I was adamant about it. And then two years later, go figure, I am diagnosed with breast cancer. And so that's when the story started really changing, really evolving, because I was, of course, learning about breast cancer inside and out. And what I had realized the original story was missing was the raw emotion. And 
in the new store, I mean, in that was replaced because I, of course, for a while was scared to death that my end was coming too. When you were diagnosed, um, did you go through chemotherapy, radiation, uh, and did you, I mean, were you told that this was, I mean, was it, it was metastatic breast cancer or were you, you know, what kind of, I guess, what kind of a prognosis did you have and how did you react to that? And, you know, in the book, obviously, uh, one of the the themes is that that Meredith Matthews, the heroine in the book or the lead character, wants to find a replacement for herself for her family, which is kind of the unique part of the book. Did you want to do that? Was that something that went through your mind when you were diagnosed at age 31, four kids? Yeah, so let me back up. So um, I was, yeah, diagnosed at 31. Um, I was only stayed one. Thankfully, I knew my body so well. Um, I caught it early uh, after many, many appointments. I had to go in, I don't even know, six or seven times. I had a negative ultrasound. My gut just kept telling me something was wrong, and I'm so thankful for that feeling. Cause I don't, I think oh, it and been. I want to stop so, you there because I hear that, my gut. But what was in your gut? Why? You know, they keep telling you, and what you do want to hear is, hey, there is nothing wrong. Yeah. So what in your I gut? Did there, yeah. Can you well, define I, it? Well, I just, yeah, I just, I will tell you, when I was driving, like putting the seatbelt around my chest would hurt. Like I had pain, and I know they say breast cancer doesn't hurt. But I do believe, like, if you have tumors in you and if they're pressing on nerves, it hurts. There's some pain to it. And you talk to more and more people that are on breast cancer boards, and they'll tell you the same thing. And so I'm thankful that I actually had pain because I would never would have noticed. Um, so I had pain, and I and I felt two lumps. And I just knew my body and my something inside kept saying, there's something seriously wrong, something seriously wrong. And so, yeah, every time I would go into the doctor, they would just look at me like, do you have history of you know, breast cancer? I would say no. They're like, your breasts are just lumpy. You're fine. Go home. Lay off the caffeine. And so I would try those things. But, yeah, it's the funniest thing. I mean, seriously, I remember the night before one of my ultrasounds, I remember being up all night crying thinking, okay, tomorrow, I told my husband, tomorrow they're going to tell me I have cancer. I just want you to know this. And I remember going in, and they looked at me like I was crazy, and they said, there's nothing here. Go home. They had missed two tumors. and um, But that's just kind of sometimes that stories of young women and breast cancer because the profile, we don't fit. Um, but my gut, and even after that, even after the negative, the negative one, I still did research, and I knew that biopsy was the only solid answer. So I went back in two more times, and I think finally I yelled at them, and I was like, just give me a biopsy, and that's when they found it. I'm very lucky that I was only stage one. Now, the medical place I was dealing with years ago made some very huge mistakes, very huge mistakes. Um, I should have had chemo. I should have had a lot more than what they gave me. So I live with that today. I have an amazing team now, and I just basically go in every six months and I get checked constantly, and so far, so good. So I'm very, I'm really, really lucky. Like, I'm one of those cases that they always look at me like, uh, we don't know what to do with you because you're really lucky at this point. But you know, Amber, it doesn't sound to me like luck so much as you are very much in tune with your body. You were very Mm -hmm. much a person who took charge of yourself, took control, who didn't accept a diagnosis that you just felt wasn't true. 
So is it luck or that, because, you know, we, um, if other women are listening to this, it is, I think there's a lot of choice involved here and a lot of self-awareness and a lot of, like, when you think you're right, making sure that you, you know, that you act on it. So, you know, um, you're, you're very true. That's, I mean, it's very true. And I think what the ultimate for me was looking at my four kids and their faces. And I remember thinking, if you do not get to the bottom of this, you could be still very sorry. Like you could be making a really terrible mistake here. Like if it is cancer and you put it to the side and then wait, what if it turns really bad? So I remember that was my ultimate. Cause you know, as moms, especially with little ones, any moms that are listening, Believe me, I'm guilty of this too. We we put our kids first so much, and we put ourselves on the back burner. But we can't do that all the time. We have to take care of ourselves to be the best mom, to be the best woman, to be the best wife or partner, whatever it is, for our, the people in our life. We cannot constantly put ourselves on the back burner. But what you also did is, I think, what's difficult, particularly with breast cancer or any cancer, but... Uh, you're kind of like pushing for something that you don't want. It's hard to do that. Yes. Like, you know, we, it's easy yes. to push for something that you're going to have a, that, that may have a, that you think is going to have a positive outcome, right. let's say. But you're just pushing right. for something that you just don't want to hear. So that makes it difficult, too, I would think. Yes, absolutely. No, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. But at the same time, I think with all my research, leading up to it really was helpful. You know, I think everybody handles things a little bit differently. I like to know all the facts. I want to know all the research. I want to know everything. So I feel like, okay, I know when they start talking to me about something, doctors or medical, I want to understand the term. So that's just how I operate. And I think it really played, it was definitely a benefit for me. For sure. What about other women and what about groups and all those kinds of things? I mean, I don't know if you're involved in that yourself or not or what, but, um, is is that you know, I mean, you know we're talking about some of the pink ribbon stuff, but uh, is do you surround yourself with other women who have breast cancer or have been diagnosed with breast cancer who are survivors, or do you stay clear of it or stay away from them? Yeah, I got to go back and forth. I've never done a breast cancer walk or anything like that. Um, I do have a few good friends in the past few years that have also faced this. I have tried to be there, answer questions for them you know, really be a support to them. But I will say that um, there was a website that I went back to when I was first diagnosed that truly, really did help me. Um, it was Young Survival, the Young Cancer Survival Survivors, yeah, .org. Really, 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 that's where I found my answers. That's where I learned that, okay, I need a biopsy for them to really know. I learned that young women's breasts are super dense. I was on those message boards for at least a good two to three years. Um, and the people, the women there really helped me. I finally had to leave just because it was really hard for me to see so many of my friends, even though we didn't meet in person on there dying, um, because their cancer did spread. So I backed away from all that. I just feel like right now I need to live my life. And sometimes when you're back on those boards, it just, it's hard because it just is a reminder that, oh my gosh, is that going to be me next year? Is that going to be me? So um, I go back and forth. I check in a little bit, but I usually, for my personal well-being and my mind and my spirit, I find that I have to stay clear of those because then I go into worry mode. So that's just me. Yeah. Well, okay. So th- another question kind of related to that, because you said 
the hospital that I guess where you were first diagnosed, lots of mistakes were made, et cetera. Okay, but now you say mm-hmm. I have a good team and I go and I get checked every six months. What makes up a good team? What would be helpful to, you know, like women who are listening? What is a good team as opposed to a team that are no team that isn't yes. helpful? Yeah. Um, a good team, and I will tell you this, if you do not like the doctor that you are with, go find another one. I will say that and take the time to do it. Um, my team, it took me probably four years to kind of find the right team. And most of them were actually referred by people I know. And a lot of them weren't even taking patients, but they took me on. A good team is someone that will actually sit. They will talk to you for about 45 minutes face-to-face. They know your story when you come in the room. They know what you've already been through. They listen. They talk to you. They, If there's a pain, they're like on it. You know, I was having some major back issues. All right, let's order an MRI. Like, there's never any fight. There's just always, it's just very different from the other care I got. I would be in and out in 10 minutes to see my oncologist. It's just not like that. So I have three different doctors now, all specializing in three different things. And it is night and day. It is, every time I feel in, I feel like they're competent. We connect and it's not a rushed appointment. And when you're dealing with your life, you know, and even if you're overly paranoid, which most people that have had cancer are overly paranoid, which we should be, you know, they, the doctors get that. So I really suggest if you are not happy, really take the time and you will to find someone new. Because when you do find that team, I don't worry anymore. I'm just not worried. Like, I know they've got me. And, you know, if cancer comes back, it comes back. But they've always, they're always doing what they, the most that they can do to help me live the longest life I can. Yeah, and you're doing the same thing. I mean, you talk about Absolutely. Uh, yeah. I mean, you're attentive, I guess, and you're not using your energy to fight your doctors, which takes up. Right. You, yeah. Oh. yeah, yeah, yeah. Which, uh, unfortunately, um, that story I've heard many times. So I think it's really important, like as you say, uh, to get the right team. So we have a couple minutes left so we want to go to be able to go to uh well first of all your book farewell my loves you can buy that what bookstores everywhere amazon.com on amazon yeah yeah mm-hmm. and uh what what and website that we can go to um i know that you um also have a nonprofit we talk we only have a couple minutes left i don't know if i should yeah. even bring this up but you do have a nonprofit families for humanity organization so what what's that about yeah, really quick. Um, it's We work in Guatemala. We work with a medical, um, a neurological clinic, an orphanage, a school, um, and we're actually leaving next Tuesday. We're taking a team of 15 moms and teens, um, basically Families for Humanity. We take groups down to Guatemala, and we do, we do educational trips. I call it educational travel because we really learn their culture. We learn from them, but we also work alongside leaders in the communities who are really making a difference in poverty and the well-being of children in their little villages. And it's been a life-changing thing. We went last year for the first time to Guatemala. I've been back three times now. It looks like I'll be going about four to five times a year leading teams. It's really been life-altering. And it's really exciting to see kids getting involved. Um, my own kids go, and they, re- they just can't wait to go back. And to really have them step outside their bubble. And I just believe we are all humanity. We are all one. We need to be helping each other in times of need. So that's really what Families for Humanity is. And it's very exciting. A lot of my passion is towards that. Fantastic. You obviously practice what you preach. You are embracing life every single day. 
Um, and um, obviously, that's a, that's a very positive thing. Not it's a families for humanity, and the author of Farewell, My Loves, Amber Farman. Thanks so much for being on the show today. It was great talking to you. Thank you for having me. We are uh, going to say goodbye. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Have a great week, and we'll see you next Wednesday. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox.